We are going to be reading Acts chapter 8. Uh, we're going to start in verse 26 and read to verse 40 as we close out Acts chapter 8 this morning. The scripture says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that as we open it and examine it and apply it to our souls, we pray that it would bring life, Father. Uh, a life which is conformed to your plan and your will and your way for our lives. Father, we pray this, not that we may be redeemed, but because Jesus has come and given his life and has opened a way to you by grace, Lord. Your favor is upon us. You do not count our sins against us. You accept us as sons and daughters, and you love us and will never leave us or forsake us. We pray that because of your grace toward us, that we would say yes and respond in the way that you desire us to, Father, because you are good and kind. We pray that we would see the world as you see it, and that we would be changed, transformed, emboldened by your grace. May we serve you in the way that you've called us to, Lord, by your grace and for your glory. Bless this time in your word now, we pray. Amen. Sometimes uh, a story has got a twist that contains within it the best news ever. Uh, you may be familiar with this story, you might not be, but if you missed it, uh, I think this movie came out in the 60s, and so I'm not ruining 
anything, but that explains some of the weird scenes in it. Uh, there's, a, there's a movie based on a book by uh, a man named Roald Dahl. The movie, I believe, is called Willy Wonka. There's two of them, Willy Wonka and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, both excellent movies in their own right, but the one with Gene Wilder uh, is the classic. Uh, in this movie, and in the other movie as well, uh, several children are given an opportunity to win a lifetime supply of chocolate, but because of their naughtiness, their opportunity is taken away. The one who recognizes his flaws and his faults, though, and owns them and admits and repents to Willy Wonka is given the lifetime supply of chocolate. But at at, at the same time, there is this twist in the story that turns this into the best news ever. Wonka is not looking just to give a child a lifetime supply of chocolate. Instead, he wants to give the child the whole chocolate factory. And this is like, I mean, every kid's dream, right? Best news ever. In studying this text. Uh, uh, the, the, the classic story is there, but there is this, this thing contained within it, this twist, I think, that, that makes this for this man the best news ever. And for us, too, it will be encouraging. So we're going we're gonna to look through three stages of this text. First, the step of faith in verse 26. Second, a ride of hope in verse 27 through 35. And then finally, an act of love in verses 36 through 40. Let's just ju- kind of jump on in. We're going we're gonna to take this journey to best news ever. Now, the scripture says, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, remember Philip, he is one of these guys who's responsible for the distribution of the food. His, his co-distributor, uh, uh, Stephen, was martyred by Saul, and Stephen, or, or Philip then, was scattered along with the rest of the church, and Philip, instead of just kind of sitting around saying, woe is me, what am I supposed to do? He went and preached the gospel, and the Samaritan people began to be converted, and he saw a wonderful ministry. We talked about that last week. He is in the midst of this ministry, and it says, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Okay, 60-mile road. Um, it's, it's a little bit uh, far from here, so got to get up and go and do this, but notice what it says next. It says, this is a desert place. Within a lot of ministry thinking and a lot of church thinking and a lot of practical Christian thinking, there is this problem that exists with the pragmatic. God tells Philip through an angel, get up, go to a road, a specific road, go there. And then the comment comes that this is a desert place. The implication is that there are not many people there. Ministry among the Samaritans is going well, right? There's all these people being converted. You had this kind of high-profile guy, Simon Magus, who tried to buy the Holy Spirit, and that's no good. And, but, but they survived that. Uh, the apostles come and inspect Philip's work. They declare that it's good. They, they pray on the Samaritans. The Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. And there is this massive outbreak of conversions. Lots and lots and lots of people coming to Christ. And in the midst of that, God says, abandon that ministry and go someplace where there are no people. A grand problem with people's thinking today is that if it is big, it must be good. Or if it meets someone's external definitions of success, it must be good. But 
Above all, we must be faithful to follow the call of God. There are stories upon stories of missionaries who left profitable careers, safe, secure environments, or good ministries, and they went to places where people do not know Jesus, and they labored for a long time, some of them up to 30 years before they had their first convert. In the world today, we would call that ministry a failure. But the Bible says that the wisdom of God and the wisdom of men are not the same. Philip receives a call from God to follow, to go. And knowing his own spirit and knowing the spirit of God and being able to discern between the two voices, verse 27 says, he rose and he went. To which I just want to say this, amen to obedience. Repentance in action is obedience. God says, live this way, do this thing, obey this commandment, follow me. And when we repent, we say, I've not been living that way. I will live that way, not to earn God's favor, but because of his kindness and goodness toward us. He's given us life and salvation. And so, amen to obedience. This is the fulfillment of, I believe, one of the greatest Christian evidences of conversion, and that's the simple wisdom of obeying what we already know. Philip hears from the Lord, and he leaves a profitable ministry. He goes and follows. Verse 27, he rose and went. This is the step of faith. Second, we see a ride of hope. It says he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. There's a, a, a man on the road. The scripture describes him as an Ethiopian. This is a, a man from Africa, south of Egypt, that old vast empire where the, the Jews were for a while, you know, land of the pyramids. This was once a major world power, but it has become old and stale. Uh, there is still money there. There are still armies there, but they are not a major player. In fact, they are being laid low regularly by the Romans. Interestingly, uh, the Romans were apparently very interested in Africans. This shows up several places in their literature. They're very interested in, in people who look dramatically different from them. Their dark skin, this was interesting. And, and in places where, where you find mention of Africans, often uh, their, their coloration is described. Now, this is not evidence of racism or prejudice based on skin color. It's just like that's different and interesting. And so there's a, a lot of interest in Roman cultures in foreign lands. From the perspective of Rome, this, Ethiopia, would be considered the ends of the earth, far away from them, the, the, the farthest culture. If we are here and the furthest thing away is Fiji on the opposite side of the world, that's Ethiopia to the Romans. And so they are interested in this. Now, it says he's Ethiopian. It also says he is a eunuch. This section of the sermon is rated PG, and so uh, be careful. Um, but it, 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 you won't hear a whole lot more than what you see at the checkout at the supermarket or what you learn on any of those commercials that will be on during a football game today. Okay, the word eunuch means two things. Generally, in ancient Roman writings, it can refer to an official or to some kind of ruler. Or it means... The, 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 the more specific meaning of the word, and that means one who has been 
castrated and then given oversight in an important area of the kingdom. Okay? Got that business over with. Let me just explain this just a little bit. Scholars go either way about who this guy is. And I'm, I'm, they've got a whole bunch of reasons. They say he's just an official or they say he is a eunuch, a real 100% bona fide eunuch. I believe he is the second guy, the guy who gave it all for his job. Now, I believe that he was not 100%, and I'll explain why later, but I will not draw great attention to that point again. Let me just say one thing. Why do, we ask the question, why did people do this to other people? What was the point of this? For one thing, think about this. If you're in charge of the king's house, or some major area of authority, you were probably often in the temple along with the king's wives and the princesses, right? And that means that if the boss wants to make sure that you're doing your job and not messing around with the ladies, he's going to fix that problem, okay? Now, here's, here's the second implication there. If one of the highest officials of the kingdom manages to produce a child with the queen or with a princess, then that child may have a claim to the throne, right? And then suddenly this guy might have a reason for disposing of you. Here, drink up. Come to a meeting in this part of the palace. And there's a bunch of guys standing there with sharp and pointy things. And now you are the father of the future king. And so men in high places had to make a sacrifice. Anyway, that's who I think this guy is. Moving on, we'll come back to that later, although not in near as much detail. Thank you, I'm glad that part is over. In charge, this man was, of the treasury of Candace. Her name, uh, her, her royal name, this is kind of like Caesar or Napoleon or Louis, uh, the name Candace. Her real name was Amanitari. I like that, that's nice. Uh, Amanitari, uh, from 25 to 41 AD, she ruled over the emperor empire of Egypt. And this is her treasurer. This means that he is a trusted, important, probably wealthy man, a man of influence, a man with a staff, a man who could get away for a while on vacation and go to Jerusalem to worship, to seek the God whom he has heard about, perhaps legends still uh, existing in that time, from, uh, in, that, in that place from the time of Solomon. Where, uh, where the Queen of Sheba came and learned of Solomon and, and God and the temple and his ways and then took news back to foreign lands. The scripture says that he is a, a God-fearer. That's the way they describe him, okay? He'd come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning, seated in his chariot, reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, there are two kinds of, of men, Okay? Uh, two kinds of converts to Judaism. The first is called a proselyte. This man would go to the temple. He'd baptize himself. That's the way they did it in a little tub called a, a mikvah. And then he would be circumcised. And that guy would become a Jew proper, a proselyte. And this guy probably could not become that. Okay? The second group is called a God-fearer, and this is someone who attends synagogue and temple worship who is interested, uh, but they have to remain in the outer court cut off from Israel proper. And they are called God-fearers. 
You may want to write this down to check out later. This man would have been excluded on the basis of Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. This is what my mentor used to call the wedding card verse, which if you think that somebody's not reading those little cutesy scripture verses that you write in things, you might want to write Deuteronomy 23, 1 and see if you get any uh, mention out of them or a reaction. Um, that's a, just a little joke there. You can, you can laugh later. Um, you must be whole... A whole person. You must be 100% to be in Israel. And so this man, I believe, had come to worship, perhaps had, had run up against some kind of obstacle that he was not aware of, or he knew the distance that would remain between him and the God who claimed to create him. And he is heading home reading the prophecy of Isaiah perhaps disappointed, perhaps rejected, or perhaps satisfied with his experience understanding the distance. The, the journey back to Ethiopia is over 1,500 miles based on my simple kind of measuring on my, my map. He had been to Jerusalem to worship. He'd worshiped in the temple. He'd worshiped in the outer court of the temple. Perhaps he had heard the disturbance about that group of people called the Way. Maybe he'd heard the name of Jesus or he'd seen or heard the apostles. He'd worshipped and he had bought and taken with him a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. Maybe this was his first trip. Maybe he'd made, made many. But I, I think that he knew in his mind, but then in his experience felt unaccepted by God. Listen to Isaiah chapter 2, what it says right there in the beginning of the chapter. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. This is the text that he was reading and he'd worked through it. So he may have read these words perhaps days before in Jerusalem or on this journey. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The nations will stream in this part of what this man was, was doing. He was in a chariot, not a, not a war chariot, but an official chariot. He probably had some support staff with him. The chariot was probably larger, could accommodate a driver, and had a, a sunshade, kind of a, like a fancy four-wheeler wagon, driver, passenger area. And so we have this man on the road, and we have Philip. Philip is, is on the road, and I think as Philip is going, he probably passes occasional foot travelers, and he's like, Hey, and they just kind of hustle along. Uh, the occasional group of guys on camels passing by, and he's like, hey, and they just they keep going. And he sees the man in the chariot. Verse 29 says that the Spirit says, go up and join this chariot. In, in him, however God speaks to him, he knows that's your guy. Go for it. And he's, he's, he's walking up. God says, this chariot to him. It says, so Philip ran to him, and as, he, as he's running up to him, he hears him reading the, Isaiah the prophet, uh, and, and he's, he's traveling up, and instead of being like, hey, he just, he hears the guy reading. Now, in that day, apparently many people used to read out loud. There's no punctuation, there's no spaces in, in, in Greek or Hebrew, and so sounding out words is probably the easiest way to read. And so uh, Philip is, is, is tromping along, um, 
You know, chariot could go about 24 miles per hour at a full gallop. Humans walk at about three miles per hour, uh, four and a half miles per hour from what I understand, I have not gotten on a treadmill as part of the new year, uh, is what you could call a brisk walk. Now a horse walks at about four miles per hour and I bet you on a journey of 1500 miles, maybe they were driving that horse just a little bit faster than that. And so Philip is kind of like running alongside, you know, listening, because the spirit has said, this is your chariot. And so he's pulling up and he's like, hey, you know, hey. Uh, and, and the guy is reading out loud, and he hears what he's reading, and he says to him, do you understand what you're reading? You know, he's like, is that, is that Isaiah, right? And the guy, the guy on, the, on the chariot's like, yes, yeah. And Philip, Philip says, um, so do, hey, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, no, how can I? How can I understand what I'm reading? This is complicated stuff. Have you read this book? And Philip is like, yes. Yes, I have. And the guy says, come on up here and, you know, catch my breath. Maybe get a drink of water out of a gourd. Philip is probably exhausted at this time, catching up with this chariot. He, he, he is brought up into the chariot. Matthew Henry says that this man, the Ethiopian, is to be commended. Because though we have many books and we live in a world of many books. This man is slogging it out on his own, trying to read and learn. As Christians, we should have a few good books, and we ought to have a few good teachers, but mostly the way that we will learn is learning for, for ourselves. We learn to read God's Word by reading. Matthew Henry calls this redeeming the time with holy duties. You know, you can get a copy of the Bible free on your iPod or your phone, and you can listen to it on the commute to work. And when you run across something that you don't know, rather than just asking someone, hey, what do you think about such and such? You can come to somebody and say, what does this passage of the Bible mean? And then learn. There's a definite contrast here between the guy that we saw last week, Simon Magus, and the Ethiopian. This man is humble. Matthew Henry says, if you would learn, you must be willing to admit poverty of knowledge. You need to have a low opinion of your present knowledge, low enough to be able to ask for help. Let me just point something out, okay? Philip jumps into this chariot. This man is reading, and Philip is now there to answer a question. Here's an application that I believe we ought to write into our hearts as we move out increasingly into world missions. God does not show up when we show up. God doesn't show up when Philip shows up. He was already there and he was already working through many experiences in this man's life. God was drawing him to himself. God brought his word into this man's life. And now that this man is at a point where he needs to know, God brings Philip there. We are tools in the hands of the master. We are not the masters. We are not the answer. We are part of the answer. Tools in his hand. Philip is asked this question. Can you explain this to me? I love that. That's one of my favorite parts of my job. People say, and I was reading the Bible, what, what does this mean? So many times I'm like, ah, wow, i got to go look at a book, and I go dig out an answer, and I, I come back to them. You can say, by the way, as a Christian, and remain credible, when, when somebody says, what does this passage of Scripture mean? You don't even need to be like, I don't know, I better make something up. 
or be like, how dare you ask that question? You could be like, great question. Let's talk about something, and I'll get back to you with an answer, and then come back with them, come back to them with an answer. What does this mean? The passage of Scripture under consideration is, like a sheep he was led to slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch says, who is this man talking about? Is, is the prophet Isaiah saying this about himself, or is he saying it about someone else? And I just imagine Philip is like, if you don't know this, I have got the best news ever for you. Jesus quoted from this section of scripture on the night before he died. In Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, Jesus is speaking. He says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Who is he describing, this man says. And he says, I, Philip says, I want to tell you about Jesus. It's his beginning with this scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus, about how he, though he had lived a perfect life, was led to slaughter. He never did anything wrong, but he died a wrongful death from humanity's perspective. But God brought him to that place so that having lived a perfect life, he could die for the sins of humanity. Jesus died patiently as the servant of God and the servant of humanity, serving a purpose as a perfect sacrifice for all who had come to him in faith. The scripture there says his life was taken from the earth. And I believe Philip probably explained how his life on earth ended wrongly, but that he was raised again and that he would live in heaven forever, how he ascended. And so he lays out the gospel, the idea that, that those who come to Jesus and who bring their sins to him can be saved by grace through faith, paying nothing. They can receive forgiveness and new life and adoption as sons, and the Holy Spirit would come to dwell in them, and they would dwell with God forever one day. He talked about Christ's life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension, but then he probably also mentioned Pentecost and the early church and talked about baptism. And that leads us to this third part, the act of love. As they were going along on the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch was like, there's water right there. If I believe this and I want this and I, and I understand about, about the gospel, I understand about this man, Jesus, shouldn't I be baptized right now? What prevents me from being baptized? The request is motivated, motivated by conviction and understanding, not just emotion. We ought not to rush people into a baptismal, but we ought not deny those who understand the gospel either. I just make a note. Verse 37 is missing. From the text. I believe this is added in later by a well-intentioned scribe. I know I am saying this at 1155. I'm not going to get into this. The language of verse 37 is odd for Luke. Uh, it adds nothing. Uh, it's got a nice ring to it, but I don't believe it's original. If you really want to know more about this, look back on the website at, at the, the John 8 sermons um, where, where we uh, I, I really got into this issue describing the text of John 8, which I believe is authentic. Um, if this really bothers you, call me, maybe. 
Thank you. Anyway, um, yes, very good. Uh, Philip then uh, goes down to the water with this man and baptizes him as a symbol of his new commitment to, to new life. He baptizes him. It says when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. That'd be weird, huh? He put me down in the water, he brought me up, and then he was gone. Philip finds himself at Azotus, and as he passes through, he preaches the gospel to all the places that he comes to. The man hears the word, he hears the gospel, and he believes it, and he is converted. Interestingly, the way this text is structured, the center of the text is the word of God. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. This is why it is important to memorize scripture that we might not sin against him, that we keep our way pure. This is why we ought to read our scriptures, to know them so we can explain, because this is the way that God works. This is why we believe in giving God's word away and why we believe in scripture translation. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, there's a big step here. A big step has been taken in Acts. We have the first fully Gentile convert. Not a Jew and not a half Jew, but a, a full Gentile. And it is believed that this man went back to Ethiopia and began to proclaim the gospel, and this led to a large conversion of Africa, which, by the way, has been won and lost for Christ over and over again through the centuries. Many, many people, including St. Augustine, uh, were from Africa. There's a rich Christian tradition there that has been lost over and over again. There's a big step here. Matthew 12, 15 Listen to this. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Verse 17 says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Jesus came and proclaimed the gospel and the, the news of the goodness and the kindness and the justice of God goes to the Gentiles. The Gentiles receive the gospel. But wait a minute, because that's not the best news ever. The gospel is the greatest news. But, but I think that, that this guy gets back on the road and he's probably beginning, like many, thinking, not me. Because I was there in Jerusalem and they rejected me. The voice of the devil is telling him, you are not whole. They, they told you that. You know that. You can read your Bible. You've seen Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. But I, I think that this man is in for the best news ever. I, I've had a conversation like this with many people, and maybe this is where you are today, right? I have talked with people, and I, I've, I've met with them, and people have said things to me like, I think God might forgive me after my divorce. I think that, I think that if, I'm, if I'm good enough, or if I serve him well, that he may someday forgive me for the years that I have wasted in rebellion. I think that perhaps I could become right with God I hope that one day I could be right with God. And, and part of me is like, I'm there and I am feeling it. You know, I'm like, I know what you feel like. I'm, I'm with you. But part of me is like, yes, yes, because I have the best news for you ever. And then we can go to passages like 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all 
unrighteousness. Pure and clean. Now listen, stick with me. Condemnation, perhaps, coming on this man. He's, he's reading. He's in Isaiah 53. And he keeps going. If you flip in your Bible to Isaiah 56, you will see what he would come on next. But if you don't flip there, you won't see it. But I'll read it anyway. He's back on the road. I got baptized. The guy disappeared. Where'd he go? Not sure. He keeps reading. And Isaiah 56 comes up. Verse 3. Let not, Isaiah 56, 3. If you're turning there, good. You will find it. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree, right? I am not a whole man. I cannot be part of Israel. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. He is wholly part of Christ. There is no separating him. There is no second-class citizenship for any Christian. How is it with you this morning as you come to this place? Is there some locked closet in your soul where you're like, I know that Jesus forgives me of my sins, but not this. If, if God ever knew about this, he knows everything. He knows every detail you've ever done. He knows every thought and intention of your heart. He knows every hair on your head. He loves you more than your mom does. If there's any locked area where you say, me, really, the gospel... Can I really? Does God want me? Me, after what I've done? Messed up me? Can I have that? The answer is yes. He loves you. He loves you enough to confront you with the gospel and to say, you are a sinner and you need my son's covering. He will cast away your sins. He will purify you and you will be my son. Think about it. All of us in this room probably statistically are Gentiles. And the very first convert, the very first Gentile convert to Christianity learns, yes, even you, cut off as you are, are acceptable and whole in Christ. He loves you. Receive him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to open this word. I pray that we would not easily shrug off the truth here, that you love us, that you make us whole, that, that you give us your grace and kindness if we will receive it. It is only our lack of faith, our blindness, our pride, our arrogance that would say, God is not speaking to me. He's a liar. No good thing does he have for me. I pray that you would keep us from the voice of the devil and from the voice of our own inner condemnation. May we instead see, receive, and believe the gospel. Father, thank you for this promise. At the very beginning of the mission to the Gentiles, we see that all are acceptable because you make them acceptable, because you are good and kind. May we who are here, whether we are lost, Lord, and I pray if there are any here this morning who do not know Christ, that they would put their faith and trust in him. 
that they would follow him all of their days. Father, whether we are lost or whether we have walked with you for years, I pray that we would open the doors of our heart, any area that is sealed off or cut off, and that we would submit those things fully to you, knowing that you will accept us and love us no matter what, because that is who you are, no matter who we are. We thank you for your kindness and your grace toward us in Jesus' precious name. Amen.